So church, receive the blood of Christ. Amen. Get out your Bibles this morning. I am curious. This will tell me something about your ability to endure. How many of you watched the 90 minutes of the presidential debate last was it Tuesday night? Anybody watch all of it? All of it. Virginia Black, God bless you. I'll see you in heaven. Okay? <laughs> I endured it. It was, you know, for as strong as I am, it was, it was hard to get through. Um, it's hard to watch two grown men act like children, insulting each other for 90 minutes. In essence, it's kind of what it came down to. Um, personally, in my opinion, it was a national embarrassment on many levels. However, what it underscored is what we already know, that there is a, uh, a divide that exists in American politics. Because of that, more than ever, we need to know, I believe, what each candidate you know, believes in, what they're running on. And so as we continue our series called Kingdom Voting, I just want to start with a brief reminder of last week's sermon. And in short, it's kind of summed up by this phrase right here. It was a sermon on biblical government, but that in short, the purposes of government, according to the Bible, are to exercise justice and righteousness by restraining evil and by bringing order to society, which in turn brings good to society. That's a brief summary of last week's message. With that in mind, I want to present to you this morning a verse that you can use to evaluate this year's candidates and their political parties. Because I want you to filter your decisions on voting through the book, meaning the Bible. Because it seems like more than anything else, when it comes to decisions that are political, we switch books. If the Bible doesn't speak to those issues, and that's not kingdom voting. Okay? Turn to Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. I don't think I put it up there. No. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. I will wait till everybody is there. Kind of go to the middle of the Bible and make it right. <laughs> That's helpful. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah speaking, chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. I can hear the sound of Bibles and pages turning. Every pastor loves to hear that. This one that's got you guys. I still hear you guys looking for it. Okay. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, 
build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives and your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now the Jewish people are in exile in Babylon. They had, as a nation, sinned against God and God had promised in the covenant relationship with him that if they sinned against him, he would judge them by sending a conquering nation to overtake them. And this is what King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire did to them. And God's saying for those exiles, obviously what? You have to continue to live your life in this land. And what I want you to do, well, build houses, plant gardens, live your life, take wives and marry and give marriage and so on and so forth. Okay? We as the church, believers in Jesus Christ, are like the Jewish people in exile in Babylon, okay? This is not our home, amen? And we're called by God as Christians to live and be exiles on the earth, but at the same time, just like the Jewish people, I believe we are to, what does it say in verse seven? Seek what? The welfare of the city, or in this case, let's say this, the welfare of the country where God has called us to live as exiles. So as Christians, part of our calling is to seek the welfare of the country. Now, I told you that biblical government is to result in bringing good to society. Seeking the welfare of the country is in essence saying the same thing as seeking the good of the country or good of society. It's just another way of saying the same thing. You guys follow me so far? The Bible is consistent in its message from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, I've entitled, Joe, by the way, I entitled this sermon, Republican, Democrat, or Kingdom Independent. And you'll understand as we get to this sermon here. But I, I mentioned a gentleman, a professor and a scholar by the name of Wayne Grudem. This is what he wrote, and I want to read this to you verbatim. He says, the choice, obviously for president, is between two whole packages, the question now facing the nation is not, does Donald Trump have an exemplary moral character or does Joe Biden have more flaws? Or even do I like Donald Trump or like Joe Biden? The question is, which of the two package deals is better for the nation? You follow me so far? So it's either A, Donald Trump and Republican policies or Joe Biden and Democratic policies. Now, some of you may be thinking, I don't like either candidate, and therefore I will not vote. But that's still not going to change the fact that the nation will have either Donald Trump and Republican policies or Joe Biden and Democratic policies. And by not voting, you are throwing away your opportunity to influence the government of this nation for good in the laws and policies that it enacts. And I want to remind you of this verse in Proverbs 3.27, just to encourage everyone to vote. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. And so we have a, a, the opportunity to vote, and it's the, the power is given to the people to put our leaders in, in positions to govern over us. And so I encourage you to, to vote. And again, this whole real sermon series is to educate us. I'm learning a lot on the issues that we're facing so that you can 
uh, vote in a, in a way that's going to vote biblically, but it's also going to what I call be kingdom voting. Now, you have an opportunity by voting to help protect the nation from great harm that would come from either Republican or Democratic Party policies and to help the nation by promoting the great good or the welfare of the country that would come from Republican or Democratic Party policies. Now, these laws and policies will set the course of the nation for years to come. So you with me so far? Okay. But I wanted to start with kind of, well, how do we get to where we are even today? And I want to begin with a brief American political party history. I just found this fascinating. You can just kind of sit back and listen to this. But which candidate's party, which candidate or party's policy seek the welfare or the good of society? In order to answer that question, let's, look, let's go to the very beginning and look at the history of the two main political parties in the United States. Now, you might know or may not know that the U.S. Constitution, it doesn't mention political parties. But very soon after the founding of our country, factions soon developed among the nation's founding fathers. Do you know what the first political party was called, by chance, any history buffs? The Federalists. George Washington, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, they favored a strong central government and a national banking system. But in 1792, supporters of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison formed an opposition faction that would become known as, and I did not notice, I kind of laughed when I read this. Do you know what it was called? Democratic Republicans. Did you guys know that? Democratic Republicans. Now, this party favored decentralized, limited government. Now, the Federalist Party dissolved completely after the War of 1812. When you go forward in time to the 1850s, the debate began to rage over whether slavery should be extended into the new Western territories that it caused a split. You had Southern Democrats that favored slavery in all territories, as history tells us, and we know that, while their Northern counterparts thought each territory should decide for itself via popular referendum. By the way, all this information is coming from the History Channel and their website. What is most important to note, however, is what happened to the party's national convention in 1860. Southern Democrats nominated John Breckinridge, while Northern Democrats backed Stephen Douglas. And a split occurred, and that helped perhaps the, the greatest president in American history, Abraham Lincoln, to win the election from the newly formed Republican Party in 1860. The Union victory in the Civil War left Republicans in control of Congress, where they would dominate for the rest of the 19th century. Now, during the Reconstruction era, now what's the Reconstruction era? Does anybody, you guys know what that is? Rebuilding the country due to the Civil War. Okay. The Democratic Party solidified its hold in the South, as most white Southerners, as you would expect, opposed the Republican measures protecting civil and voting rights for African Americans. But yet you would say today that which party is more pro-African American, Republican or Democrat? You would say Democrat. But by the mid-1870s, Southern Democratic state legislators had succeeded in rolling back many of the Republican reforms in Jim Crow laws enforcing segregation and suppressing black voting rights would remain in 
place for the better part of a century. As the 19th century drew to a close, the Republicans had been firmly established as a party of big business, while the Democratic Party strongly identified with rural agricultural society and conservative values. But during the turn of the century, the Democrats saw a split between its conservative and more progressive members. And this is actually really key to listen to this. The Democratic nominee for president in 1896, William Jennings Bryan, advocated for an expanded role of government in ensuring social justice. Now, though he lost, Bryan's advocacy of bigger government would influence the Democratic ideology going forward. It is still like that today. And it goes back to 1896 and William Jennings Bryan. However, the Democratic Party was still not a popular party. And in 1932, Franklin Delano Roosevelt became the first Democrat to win the White House since Woodrow Wilson. But Roosevelt's reforms, you know, the New Deal and so on, it raised hackles across the South, which generally didn't favor the expansion of labor unions or federal power, and many Southern Democrats gradually joined Republicans in opposing further government expansion. Then in 1948, President Harry Truman, who was a Southern Democrat, he introduced a pro-civil rights platform. And a group of Southerners walked out of the party's national convention. Now, while some Southern Democrats returned to the fold, this incident marked the beginning of a seismic shift in the party's demographics. Because at that time, many black voters had remained loyal to which party? The Republican Party since the Civil War began. And these black people, black membership, started voting Democratic during the Depression. And they would continue to do so in greater numbers with the dawn of the Civil Rights Movement. How many knew the Republican Party was anti-slavery, pro-African-American rights from the very beginning? How many of you knew that? Yeah, I see not all of you did. It's, you would say it's opposite today, although both parties are for that, but mainly the Democratic Party is identified with that. Now, Although Republican President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed the civil rights legislation, it was Lyndon Johnson, a Democrat from Texas, who eventually signed the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 into law. And he said this, upon signing the former bill, he was speaking to his top aide, Bill Moyers, that when he signed that law, he delivered the South to the Republican Party for a long time to come. And over the course of the late 1960s and 70s, more and more white Southerners voted Republican, driven not only by the issue of race, but also by white evangelical Christians' opposition to abortion and other culture war issues. So that's a brief history. How many of you learned something new from that? I know I did when I researched that. Yeah. It kind of gives an idea of kind of where we, we, we got to where we are today. And so I thought, okay, well, what are the uh, political party platforms? Just to educate you guys on kind of what the platforms are, what the, the candidates are running on, what each party stands for, and so on. And here, in, in essence, is, and you can go online and, and read these, by the way, this is the, the 2020 Democratic platform. Now, these are just the, the, the big points. I don't know how many there are, maybe eight or ten of those. 
But underneath, like protecting Americans recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic, it goes into greater detail, paragraphs of what they would do. So each of these, they have greater detail of what they would do for building a stronger, fair economy, universal, affordable health care, uh, reforming the criminal justice system, healing the soul of America, so on and so forth. You would recognize some of these uh, positions of the uh, Democratic Party. They're big into protecting the environment, environmental justice, and so on. But you see that, okay? You can find it online. It's, it's, it's copied word for word there. Here is the 2016-2020 Republican platform. I have to admit, I did like reading the Republican platform because it was shorter. It was a pain to prepare this sermon, to be honest with you guys, because I spent a lot more time, I don't know a lot about politics, researching these, and I'll explain more what I had to do, but it was just like, okay, there's all pages and pages and pages, I want to make sure I got everything right or as best as I could. The reason why I put 2016 is that they didn't put out a 2020 page, the Republican Party didn't do that, because of COVID. And they just ran off of what their 2016 party platform was. And you can see that on there when you go to the Republican National Convention website. But you can see Restoring the American Dream, and you can read those, and you see them, what is up there. Okay? Now, here's the big point I want you to get out of this. With the country so politically divided, I wanted to begin by saying that both Republican and Democratic parties, they have policies that seek the welfare or good of the country. That, Jeremiah 29, 4-7, is the lens I'm encouraging you to run your vote through that. It, it, are these policies seeking to go to the welfare of the country? So I'm trying to equip you to give you, educate you, give you ideas of what to do so you can be, make an educated biblical kingdom vote. Both parties have policies that will seek the good of the country. For example, you will find on their party platforms, you can go read them in the finer details in the paragraphs, that they have policies regarding better education, rebuilding of infrastructure, stronger economy, affordable health care, fiscal responsibility, an end to poverty, criminal justice and prison reform, a global advancement of human rights, etc. Just to name a few. Now, how each political party goes about accomplishing these policies may differ. But in the end, the goal of implementing these policies is to bring about the welfare or the good of the country. Okay? So there'd be no biblical disagreement with these policies. Now, when discussing the Bible and politics, here's my strong word to you. You need to strive to avoid, as a believer, as a Christian, the good-bad split. See, what are you talking about? Well, you can go to psychology today, go to the website, you'll find out the term, just put in good-bad split, you'll come, find the term splitting. It's a psychological term. It is defined as the division or polarization of beliefs, actions, objects, or persons into good and bad by focusing selectively on their positive or negative attributes. We learned about this 25, 30 years ago in Campus Crusade. Dr. Henry Cloud, a Christian psychologist, talked about the good-bad split. So in other words, and in, in the website Psychology Today talks about this. This is often seen in politics, for example. You have a left-wing politicians think of right-wing politicians as narrow-minded and self-interested. Right-wing politicians think of left-wing politicians as self-righteous hypocrites. In other words, to put it in a way you may understand it, 
When you see somebody or a situation, it's either all good or all bad. Right? All good or all bad. For those of you that are married, you get in a fight with your spouse. At that time of the fight, is your wife good or is your husband good or is they bad? You know, you see, you're viewing them right then and there as all bad. They can't do anything right. So it's a good, bad split. We have to fight against that. We have to fight against that. There is some good in each political party. As you can hear a pin drop right now. So are you suffering from the good-bad split? Well, you know, as a country, we had a good-bad split test that we took, whether you knew it consciously or subconsciously, this past Friday when the news of President Trump testing positive for the coronavirus. How would the country respond? Well, unfortunately, there were responses of joy that the president is sick, and there were posts on social media hoping that he dies, and they were far too common. It's someone's health supersedes, goes way above their politics. If you can't move beyond that, you're suffering from the good-bad split. And trust me, you don't want people to view you that way. Too many in the country failed that test because they're suffering from the good-bad split. Again, we must get to the place where we can see the good and the bad in, in people despite their political affiliations. Now, can I get an amen from this congregation on that? Okay. Now, that being said, there are some clear policies uh, that are in direct conflict with what the Bible says. That if implemented, they will not bring about the good of society or the, or the welfare of the country. In fact, they will only bring about destruction. It is the sum of these policies as a way of educating you not to advocate any particular party but I will have to address these issues because they're in violation of the Word of God. Really, that's why we're here. And I had to go back to, and this is why it was so hard, I went back to 2008. I could have gone back further, but I only had so much time this week. And I looked at each political party, Democrat, Republican, their platform, what they were running on. And clearly saw how much the Democratic Party has shifted more to the left. And you'll see what I'm saying here to a more liberal or radical position. I want to read to you this policy statement that came from the Republican Party on immigration 2008. I put this up here for you so you could see. You'll recognize this as coming from the Republican Party, right? Because look at this. We cannot continue to allow people to enter the United States undetected, undocumented, and unchecked. The American people are a welcoming and generous people but those who enter our country's borders illegally and those who empty them or employ them disrespect the rule of the law. We need to secure our borders and support additional personnel, infrastructure, and technology on the border and at our ports of entry. Now, that is consistent with the Republican Party's policies on immigration. Right? Yes, see that? Anyone disagree with that? That it would. No. Pretty obvious, right? 
But what if I were to tell you that I just intentionally misled you? That this statement came from the 2008 Democratic Party platform. Would you believe me? With all that went on two years ago with the building of the wall, does that sound like a Democratic Party position regarding immigration? That is word for word from the 2008 Democratic Party platform. Now, it's a direct quote, and based upon the controversy of building a, a wall along our southern border, we would never guess that that was a Democratic Party policy, but it highlights a pattern I observed in reading both party platforms. The Democratic platform, it frequently changes with the times that I noticed. And I, I, this is the first time I've ever done this, looked at each party's platform. While the Republican platform basically remained relatively unchanged. But that really took me back. Because getting involved in this and researching this, I had this idea based upon what I saw the Democrats doing in the, in the resistance to building the wall that they were obviously anti-immigration. Well, that was Barack Obama, president. That's what they ran on. Now, here is the Democratic Party platform through, through the years. And I just want you to see um, this shift that is going on and the issues that, that I'm viewing these party platforms through the Bible and, and where it's a contradiction or it's a direct uh, opposition to what the Bible teaches. So, for example, 2008, these are some of the things I found. That they're pro-choice, obviously. They're, that the Democratic Party lives and dies on Roe versus Wade. You need to get that in your thinking. That is what their pillar, what they're standing on. They brag about it. It's all over their policy or their platform. They are pro-choice. Obviously, the Bible speaks of being pro-life and values life and so on. So the Bible speaks against that. The judicial activism was last week's sermon. They're putting justices in the Supreme Court that are liberal and are, you, you know what I went through last week's sermon, okay? They openly talk about judicial activism. Now, I want you to keep watching this shift. In 2012, you find this in their uh, platform. They're pro-choice. But what's added here is the repealing the Defense of Marriage Act. Do you remember that? That defined marriage only between a man and a woman. And they begin to advocate homosexual marriage that was not mentioned in the 2008 party platform. And they're promoting sexual morality, open sex with government-provided contraception. There's an anti-God agenda and, of course, the judicial activism. Let me explain some of this stuff. The original 2012 party platform I was unaware of it. I found it out and mentioned it to Debbie. She had remembered it from 2012. There was a big controversy after their party platform was written because the typical invocations and references to God and God-given rights were omitted. In language affirming the role of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel was removed. And when it was discovered that this move was very unpopular, they rushed to put it back, God back in their party platform. Now, you're going to see a move away more towards liberal, radical, anti-God things because they're removing God from their party. Okay? Even if they put the name in there, you'll see these policies, and this list is going to grow more and more and more in 2016, 2020. You'll see this. Now, the Defense of Marriage Act, it's a federal law, 
in the United States, it was signed into legislation by which president? Can you tell me? Bill Clinton in 1996. But it was overruled on June 26, 2015 by the U.S. Supreme Court decision Obergefell versus Hodges. It was overruled because of why? The challenge by which group of people? The LGBTQ, the, you know, that, that homosexual agenda, that those group, they challenged that. And it was overturned by a liberal Supreme Court. In 2016, you'll see this. Pro-choice, advocating now, or advancing an LGBTQ agenda. You see this language in 2016 that you don't see quite as much in 2012, but they're picking up on this. They are now guaranteeing lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender rights. They have redefined family, in essence. They're promoting sexual immorality, again, the open sex with government-provided contraception. Let me explain that. Because of abortion, and because of the, 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 the family unit, the, the man and the woman no longer being together, and, and the the great society providing welfare so that single mothers could raise their children, they're, go ahead, have sex, we'll provide the contraception, and we'll provide a way for you to live without a male in the house. So they're basically, it's open sexual immorality. Have sex outside of marriage, okay? Get pregnant, we'll take care of you. But we also don't want you to get pregnant, so we'll provide contraception for you. In 2020, you see this now. See, as larger this is getting the movement that we're seeing here. Pro-choice, obviously, advancing this. Notice it's not LGBTQ, it's LGBTQ plus. What's the plus stand for now? Your gender identity. If you're confused about whether you're male or female, okay? Uh, they're promoting sexual morality. Um, they want to restore funding to Planned Parenthood. Why is that? Well, because when the Republicans took over office, they defunded federal funding for Planned Parenthood. Let's be honest about Planned Parenthood. It does provide some counseling and some help, but for the most part, Planned Parenthood is an abortion clinic. That's how they make their money. And they're living and dying on Roe versus Wade, so they're going to restore money to Planned Parenthood. They want to restrict religious liberty. I'll get to that in a moment. They're pro-judicial activists. We know what that is. They want to defund the police. It's police reform. Now, they don't call it defund the police. They want to reassign funds, which in essence is the same thing, taking money away from police, which will end up doing what? Less officers on the streets, which will do what for crime? It's going to go up. Exactly. They want open borders. I'll explain what I mean by that if you don't know what that means. They want to end systemic and structured racism. I'll address that as well. And there's a movement, as you know, towards socialism. All that I've mentioned on, on these party platforms are not seeking the welfare of the nation or the good of the country. There are things that are very good on both parties, but particularly in the Democratic Party, these are not seeking the welfare of the nation, which we are called as Christians to do. Now, let me explain some of this. In regarding um, abortion, they want to, this is a direct quote, we will repeal the Title X domestic gag rule and restore federal funding for Planned Parenthood, which provides vital preventative and reproductive health care for millions of people. I like how they word that because it hides the truth. 
Democrats oppose and will fight to overturn federal and state laws that create barriers to reproductive health and rights. Well, who is protecting the health of that unborn child? We will repeal the Hyde Amendment and protect and codify the right to reproductive freedom. The Hyde Amendment it's legislation, it's a legislative provision barring the use of federal funds to pay for abortion, except to save the life of the woman or if the pregnancy arises from incest or rape. They want to repeal that. Obviously, and we'll have a whole sermon on abortion and what the Bible says about that, that is, is not biblical and it is not seeking the welfare of the country. Second point, we will reject the Trump's administration's use of broad religious exemptions to allow businesses, medical providers, social service agencies, and others to discriminate. That's a direct quote. Let me explain what that means. There was a case called the Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania. Do you remember this, anybody? And thankfully, the Supreme Court upheld in the decision 72 religious exemptions to a Department of Health and Human Services contraceptive mandate. Without that exemption, the mandate forces faith-based employers to provide contraception coverage in health plans even if they object morally. Practically, it meant that the nuns, the little sisters of the poor, would have to fund birth control. Churches would have to cover abortions. U.S. taxpayers would pay for overseas abortions would be the newest export. That's really what the, all that stuff meant. That's an attack on your religious freedom. It goes further because this is another quote. We will appoint judges who defend the constitutional principles of liberty and equality for all and will protect one's right to safe and legal abortion. I have to explain to you the lie that's in equality for all. It's referring to the Equality Act. You guys remember this? The Equality Act. It would codify LGBT non-discrimination protections into federal law. This would greatly impact the freedom of Christian schools, Catholic hospitals, and faith-based nonprofits to uphold policies consistent with their beliefs on sexuality and marriage. In other words, this is what the Equality Act would do. It would end women's sports. What do you mean it would end women's sports? Because a transgender male who's confused about his identity can now go and say he's a female and, guess what, compete in the track marathon or a track event with women, which is already happening. And who's going to win the race? The men are. That is not popular, by the way. It would end girls' and boys' bathrooms. It would end Christian counseling. But what do you mean it would end Christian counseling? Do you understand what I mean by that when I say it would end Christian counseling? You can't say you're homosexual that that's wrong or you're transgender that's wrong. You'd be discriminating. It would end privacy laws, conscious protections. It would end thousands of years of biology. It would end medical ethics. And it would end parents' rights. It is an attack on your religious freedom. Clearly stated in the Constitution. 
The radical push for LGBTQ plus rights, it's an attack on religious freedoms, and it, this law specifically targets conservative Christians, whether you're an evangelical, you're a Catholic or a Christian, it's specifically attacking you. The Democrats, another quote, they condemn President Trump's determination to sow chaos and division by inappropriately deploying federal agents to American cities, where too many have used egregious tactics against peaceful protesters. We know federal agents can ably protect federal property while also clearly displaying badges, insignias, and identifying markings without detaining Americans in undisclosed locations without cause, without brutally attacking peaceful protesters. Democrats are committed to following the rule of law and will uphold the First Amendment right to peacefully assemble. This is the defund the police, reform the police part of their platform. Now, by a show of hands, again, of all the protesting you've seen, would you say that it has been primarily peaceful? Would you say it's been primarily not peaceful? It's turned into rioting and looting. All you have to do is have a phone, a computer, or a TV, and you can see it, what, what's going on there. By the way, that Democratic Party didn't even acknowledge and condemn the, the violence of the protests in their convention. They got so much kickback, it forced Joe Biden to come out and, and address that issue. So to defund the police hurts who, by the way? If you take money away from the police who are maintaining law and order in our society that needs it more than ever, who is it primarily hurting? It's not people in this room, is it? Who is it hurting? It's hurting the poor in the cities that are crying out for more law and order. Is that good for the welfare of the country? Everyone should be shaking their That's not good. I mean, that's basic common sense. That is not good for the welfare of the country. Another quote. Democrats will rescind President Trump's fabricated national emergency, which siphons funding away from our men and women in uniform to construct an unnecessary, wasteful, and ineffective wall on the southern border. And I just read to you what they wrote in their platform in 2008. But here's the reality. The immigration system we have in the United States has been broken for years. It's just that Donald Trump has gotten around to actually trying to address the issue. The laws that we have, are, you know, maybe you remember when the, two, two years ago when this controversy was going on regarding the building of the wall and the funding of the wall, but known illegal aliens that are criminals, that are rapists, that are drug dealers, that are murderers would simply grab a child enter the country and claim asylum. And what would happen is then they would be, okay, you can come to the United States, come back at this date and we'll process everything and what will happen? They're not coming back and to make matters worse, when they find out who they are, where can they go to get safety? Sanctuary cities. No, nobody wants that, Right? But my question is, this is the whole idea of open borders. In essence, that's what we have. And it's, other countries have built walls. And quite frankly, because of, of the, the 
criminals coming into our country illegally and killing innocent Americans, something needed to be done. So the wall was being built. But the Democrat Party is against that. In essence, the party of open borders. My question is this, how are open borders that allow violent criminal illegal aliens to enter the United States seeking the welfare or good of the country? It is not. Now, they also, they want to end systemic racism. Well, Pastor, don't you think that racism is wrong? Absolutely, I do. Here's what they, they wrote. We will push for a societal transformation to make it clear that black lives matter, that there's no place for racism in our country. Well, you just made a racist statement because you're only saying that what matters. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on this. I already did in the sermon a couple months ago, but you know about the Black Lives Matter movement and how it is anti-God, anti-biblical, and so on. It would end the nuclear family, which would not be good for the country. You can see my sermon on that. It's on the website. You can listen to that. Now, that's just some of what I put up there. My point is this. In not even addressing socialism, the Green New Deal, what that Democratic Party put out there, and what Joe Biden recently said, he's for, and then he goes back and forth on, do you know what that would do to the country financially? We'd go bankrupt. Is that good for the country? No. No. Now, again, there are good things in the Democratic Party, and there are good things in the Republican Party. There are bad things in the Republican Party. Not bad, but the Republicans have done a poor job in health care. At least the Democrat Party has a plan, right? Regarding the environment, what has the Republican Party done? You get the idea. I'm trying to get a balanced perspective here. Now, my point is this, is that, but you see the shift, a visual shift of where the Democratic Party, what they have written, where it is, is moving towards. In regard to the Republican Party platform, what I found, it's consistently pro-life, uh, the support of the Defense of Marriage Act, they're protecting religious freedoms, they're supporting law and order, appointing originalist judges. And just by reading the two party platforms, it is plain to see that Republican Party policies have increasingly favored policies consistent with Christian values while Democratic Party policies have increasingly strayed from Christian values. It's not the fault that you are a conservative evangelical, that that's the way the two main political parties are lining up. Now, this initially happened, and most notably over the issue of abortion rights, but it spread to many other policies. Now, there's a tendency that you might be thinking, well, Pastor Chris must be a Republican. I am not. I want you to start to think this way, become a kingdom independent. Got this idea from Tony Evans. Turn to Joshua 5. Joshua chapter 5. Go to your Bible and make a left. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Sixth book of the Bible. Joshua chapter 5, 13 through 15. Remember, God had promised uh, to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land. 
The fulfillment of that promise came when Joshua, the assistant to Moses, kind of led the people into the promised land. They were commanded to occupy the lands by driving out the pagan people. And the people of Jericho were one of the groups of people to be defeated. You guys, everyone there? As Joshua approaches Jericho, remember this story? He picked this up in verse 13 in chapter 5. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, they lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, whether I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? So the commander of the army of the Lord was an impressive figure. You can imagine, like an angel, probably the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And Joshua saw him and thought, okay, this guy and his armies, I want him on my side. Because if he's on the side of of Israel, they would surely be victorious. If he's on the side of Jericho, they're going to lose. So it only makes sense to find out whose side he was on. And look at verse... 13. Actually, verse 14. He asks the question, whose side are you on? And what does he say? No. In essence, he was saying, I'm not on either side. Now, just listen to this. You can find a similar example, I think, in the New Testament. Jesus Christ arrives to earth, grows up in a uh, a religious culture that was dominated from a Jewish perspective between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And he was frequently asked questions that would hopefully lead to answers that might give a hint if he sided with the Sadducees or the Pharisees. Think of them as the two major denominations of his time. Now, the Sadducees would be the liberal denomination. Pharisees would be considered conservative evangelicals. Yet we consistently find Jesus answering their questions that left them clueless as to his loyalties. And he often criticized both the Sadducees and Pharisees. In essence, he told them, no, I am not on your side. Now, let's take these two examples. Let's apply them to our current political landscape. On the one side, you have the Democratic Party. They're the liberal Sadducees. They're the people of Jericho. On the other side, you have the Republican Party. They're the conservative Pharisees. They're the people of Israel. They're Joshua. Whose side is God on? The answer is no. He's not on any side. Jesus reminds us of John 18, 36, that my kingdom is not of this world. He's not going to come and defeat his enemies through the Democratic Party. He's not going to come and defeat his enemies through the Republican Party. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. That's his kingdom policy, the expansion of his kingdom. As a believer, as a Christian, you have to make a vote. I want you to vote. You're going to have to vote, either Democrat or Republican. But you need to be loosely affiliated with either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Well, why? 
Because you need to be a kingdom independent. That's where your loyalties lie. Your voting should represent whose kingdom? His kingdom. And what is kingdom voting? It is partnering with God to expand his kingdom for the sake of his glory. You got that? And here's the closing point. How did Joshua respond to the commander of the Lord's army? Look at verse 15. What does he do? I mean, it was a shock to him because they had Yahweh with them, right? He was with them. Surely this person was with the side of Israel. How did Joshua respond when he heard no? He bowed down. And that's what I'm asking you to do with your vote. Put aside your political posturing. Put aside your flawed, biased reasoning. And you do have flawed, biased reasoning when it comes to politics. Bow down before the Lord. Vote with a kingdom perspective. Take the verse I gave you, Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. Let that be a guide. Which policies are for the welfare of the country? And let that be your guide. And that's the application point. Will you bow down and vote with a kingdom perspective? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close with the song this morning, I thank you that we are of your kingdom. That all the, the political junk that's going on right now in our world, in our country particularly, let's not get caught up in that. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. We know that what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Remind us to live day by day for your kingdom, for your glory. And Lord, it's not just our voting that we need to surrender to what your word says. It's every area of our life. May we live surrendered, broken lives for the advancement of your kingdom, for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.